Well, good morning, everyone. If you'd like to open your Bibles or your corner posts, we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. Um, as you would have um, seen, hopefully, from your announcements coming out via email. Oh, and by the way, if you want to have children go to Corner Pebble, they're going out now so you can follow the little exodus that's going out the back door. Um, you would have seen that the, the um, picnic for today has been cancelled. Yes, I was uh, premature in my jesting about the Swans winning um, the AFL. Can I just say... There is a, like Andrew Ridge reminded me of this while we were watching Sid, Sydney go down, pretty much from the get-go. Uh, there is a time to win and a time to lose. There is a time to gloat and a time to refrain. Why do the wicked prosper? Sorry. Um, just kidding, just kidding. Let's turn in all seriousness to God's word now. And we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Starting at verse 1. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones, and a time to gather them, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain, a time to search, and a time to give up, a time to keep, and a time to throw away, a time to tear, and a time to mend, a time to be silent, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live. That everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. Whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. Let's pray. Lord, what a great joy it is to come on this, the Lord's Day, to join together in corporate worship. Lord, we worship you throughout all of our lives, but 
There's something special about coming together with brothers and sisters whom you have forgiven, whom you have redeemed, whom you have chosen and called even before you'd created the world. Lord, what a special blessing it is to come together because we know that wherever two or more are gathered in your name, then there you are in the midst of them. So, Father, we pray with all the worries and thoughts crowding out our hearts and our minds this, this morning, we pray that you would quieten our hearts, that we would sit at your feet and that we would feed on your word. May you do that supernatural work of your, your Holy Spirit. May we hear your voice and may we respond with the obedience of faith. And please, Lord, bless me that I would speak in a way that gives you glory and brings edification to all of us. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted to begin this morning by actually asking you to turn to the book of James. Uh, I only want to read a couple of verses from verses 13 to verse 17 of James chapter 4. But the reason I want to go there is because I think it provides a practical application as to what Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is all about. Normally preachers leave the practical application of their sermons to the very end, don't they? But this morning I want to put it before us right up front. Because I want to show you that Solomon's words are just as relevant today as they were when they were first written. You see, James says this in verse 13. He says, Now listen, you who say, tomorrow, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Now, you would have noticed over the past couple of weeks how Solomon, the writer of Ecclesiastes, keeps on using the word vanity or meaningless, depending on which particular translation you're using. It comes from the Hebrew word hevel, which means vapour or mist. And that's precisely what our lives are. Like the morning mist, they are transitory and fleeting. They may look substantial, but they are not. You know, sometimes when you're coming down the Channel Highway... Uh, and you see, or from, from wherever you are living in Hobart and its surrounds, you'll see a jerry uh, floating above the, the river. It's there for a little while. It looks substantial, but by mid-morning it's gone. That's what our lives are like, Solomon says. Oh, we might think that we're in control, but if we stop and think about it, we're really not. I mean, you could boast that tomorrow you're going to do this or you're going to do that. But all it takes is a change in the weather and barbecues get cancelled. 
or a child gets sick and your well-laid plans are thrown out the window and in total disarray. And that's precisely the point that Solomon is addressing here. He's confronting us with the question of who is in charge. And the answer he provides us with is as simple as it is profound. He says, it's not you or I, but the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who holds all of our times in his hands. Jesus is the one who made us. Jesus is the one who died for our redemption. And as we saw in Philippians 2 a couple of weeks ago, Jesus is the one before whom every knee must bow. And therefore, what it means to be wise is to understand and appreciate that fact. Let me explain. In verses 1 to 8 of Ecclesiastes 3 are probably the most well-known and popular verses in the entire book. And if you're over 40, you'll probably, you probably can't help but um, hear in your head the tune or the words to the song, Turn, Turn, Turn. I'm not going to sing it. Uh, it's by the birds. Um, whenever Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is read, most people um, of a certain vintage, that's the song that they sing or they hear. It was almost the theme song for the social revolutionary culture of the West in the 1960s and the 1970s. And while it's great that this song made a part of God's word more well-known, I think it's also presented us with something of a bit of a problem. Because the passage is not really talking about us and the different kinds of responses we should make depending on our given situation. It's not talking about how we always need to be discerning about what we do. Don't get me wrong, it is, that is completely true. And there's application to that. As the book of Proverbs says, to make an apt answer is a joy to anyone and a word in season, how good it is. And what's more, the Bible also exhorts us to work hard and to not be like the sluggard who refuses to expend energy or make any effort. But that's not the point that Solomon is making here. In fact, I think it's just the opposite. What Solomon is saying here is that everything is ultimately out of our hands. Because God is the one who orchestrates our circumstances to which we have the responsibility to respond. Do you see? Let me give you an example. You've probably all heard the expression, silence is golden. Any parent looking at me right now is going, hmm, so true. It's a wonderful truism because when we're quiet, we can better think through and weigh up the arguments as to what anyone else around us is saying. But there comes a point when you have to speak. And it would be wrong to not do so. There is a time to speak and there is a time to be silent. I wonder if that's why the passage we read from before in James chapter 4 ends with the line, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. You see, there are sins of what they call, theologians call commission, that is, sins that you commit deliberately and intentionally, and there are also sins of omission, the good you didn't do, but that you should have done. 
It sounds like a random thing to say at first, especially in the light of everything that James has just been saying. But when you stop and think about it, it, it's actually not. Because what it's saying is that it's not right to doggedly pursue your predetermined course of action when the circumstances around you change. That's just, can I say, an example of spiritual rebellion or even our own sinful stubbornness and pride. Take verse 2 of Ecclesiastes 3, for example. There is a time to be born and a time to die. Anyone who's had a baby will know that babies rarely arrive on time. Some come early and unexpectedly, whereas others are way overdue. And besides electing to have a caesarean, there's very little you can do about it. In fact, even with a caesarean, I've got good friends that have been turned away and have to come back three days later. I still remember how exasperating it was for Angie when our first son, Joshua, was born. He ended up being two weeks overdue. Not only that, but Angie was induced on Wednesday night, but he didn't actually come arrive in this world until Saturday morning. The whole thing went on for so long, and she doesn't let me forget this, at one point I went out and got Indian for lunch. (laughs) But it made us both realise just how out of control our lives were. Alternatively, there's the day of our death. Now, again, if we could just put aside for a moment the horror and the tragedy of someone committing suicide... But we have very little control over when we die, don't we? I'll never forget getting a phone call when I, we were living in Wee War that I had to urgently come back to Sydney because the doctor said that my dad uh, wasn't going to make it through the night. In fact, the nurses uh, at his bedside had turned his bed around to face the window. And when he asked them why were they doing that, They said, we thought you'd like to see your last sunset. He had bone cancer as well as a serious staph infection and the nurses had turned uh, his bed to the window because they thought, well, this is is the last day you're alive. That's how dire the situation was. So I drove through the night to be by his bedside. When I got there in the morning, he was uh, alive Before going into his room, I spoke to the minister of the church where he was attending and I asked, you know, Andy, when do you think we can do the funeral? I think we could do it Monday. Angie's back in Wee with four little kids. He goes, I've got something on Monday, Mark. Maybe, you know, I said, look, please, by Wednesday or Thursday, the latest. And he said wisely, just let's just wait and see. When uh, we went into his room, do you know what he said to my dad? He said, you know, Max, God is sovereign and he could heal and restore you even now. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. Oh, come on, I thought. I know that God is sovereign, but there's no way that's going to happen. But then the minister doubled down and he said, you know, no one really knows how many days they have left, Max. Who knows? Mark or I might even die before you. I looked at him flabbergasted. Again, I thought, yeah, well, that might technically be true, but that ain't going to happen either. 
And so we prayed for him, we set him apart by God, by anointing him with oil. We chatted for about half an hour or so and then we left. But you know what happened? He got better. I kid you not, my dad got out of hospital and lasted for something like another 18 months. I can tell you, I started driving really safely around the streets of Wewell <laughs> because I honestly thought that the Lord was going to take me. I'm really sorry, Lord, your arm is not too short to save. That's precisely what Solomon is saying here. You can't think that everything in life is hilarious and make a joke out of it because there is a time to weep. You can't always keep on searching for someone or something you've lost because there is a valid time to stop. You see, again, we think in our pride, don't we? I will never give up searching. I will keep searching till the end of my days. That's foolish. There is a time to stop. And you can be so committed to peace that you're never prepared to fight in a war. Because for everything there is a season and for everything there is a time. And amazingly, for each one of these paradoxes, God has made them beautiful in their time. There's even a time to hate as well as a time to love. Once again, that's really quite shocking, isn't it? Because passages like the rightly famous 1 Corinthians 13 talk about how wonderful and how timeless love is. Where there are prophecies, Paul says, they will cease. Tongues will be stilled and even knowledge passes away. But love, love never fails. Indeed, love is one of the very defining core characteristics of God himself, is it not? God is love. And yet, Solomon can still say in verse 8 that there is a time to love and a time to hate. Which means that even love is not an absolute virtue to be pursued in every single situation. The Beatles were wrong when they sang, all you need is love. Because life experience will tell you, sometimes the right thing to do is to hate. Such as when you see a criminal act or an injustice committed. There are some things which are so vile and evil that the right thing to do, the Bible says, is to hate. So that's the first thing that Solomon has to say. There is one who rules over or rules on the throne of heaven and in heaven above. And as such, you and I are not in charge. And no single virtue should be applied every single time. And as such, if you and I want to truly be wise, then we can't pursue the same course of action every single time. The second point follows on from this, and it's simply this. While you and I are not the ones who are in charge, there is a person who is. And as we all know, now with 2020 vision, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Just take a look with me at what Solomon writes in verse 11. It's easy to miss what Solomon is saying here, but if you keep in mind everything that he has just been saying, it makes perfect sense. He says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. 
Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now, the term time appears a massive 28 times in this particular part of God's word. And as you've already hopefully seen, the big idea is that there is a God who is sovereign over all. As King David says in Psalm 31, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hands. You see, the Lord has placed an awareness of eternity inside each and every one of us. That is, everyone has a sense of timelessness. But here's the thing. No one on their own can truly understand it. Because no one has a grasp as to what is going to happen next. We're like the proverbial bunch of blind men, each trying to describe a different part of the elephant. We might discern that there's something bigger than ourselves out there, but unless God gives us sight, unless God gives us eyes to see, we don't see the whole. No one in and of themselves is able to grasp and understand the big picture. At this point in salvation history, no one was able to discern this because life's greatest mystery is what comes after death. And so Solomon says this in verses 12 and 13. He says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Now, that said, I think that verses 14 and 15 are, especially when you first read them, really tricky to understand. So it's important to read over them again slowly. Solomon says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever... Nothing can be added to it or anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Verse 15 in particular I think is really tricky. It almost, In fact, it sounds almost cryptic. I think verse 14 is straightforward enough. God is sovereign over, um, is in sovereign control over everything which takes place. But verse 15 is really just a continuation of what Solomon has just been saying. And the thing that makes it a little difficult to grasp is the ESV's translation which says, God seeks what has been driven away. Because you see, the Hebrew phrase driven away could also be translated as that which is pursued or that which is in the past. The underlying idea then is that God will take care of everything that mankind pursues or seeks out. As one commentator I was reading explains, only God successfully seeks out and apprehends whatever is sought. Only God determines the result, such as who will win the battle. Or who will succeed? Or we might even say a little flippantly, who will win the grand final? It's all in God's hands. Understood in this way, the answer is in keeping with everything else that Solomon has been saying. 
The Lord is in sovereign control over everything that takes place. And that's precisely where our New Testament reading fits in. Remember how when Paul preaches the gospel to those in Athens, in verses 26 and 27 he says this, From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. I've seen this particular truth played out again and again. In his wonderful, sovereign providence, the Lord sets the exact time and places for us to live as a witness to himself. That we would see that there is something that is not Hevel, like a mist or a vapour. That we would acknowledge that there is one who is a rock over all. Someone who is eternal, without time, and of true substance. Throughout your life, you'll often have, I think, if you have eyes to see and a heart humble to accept, that there is one who is in control. Even when you try and do a Jonah and run in the opposite direction, God directs the whale. There is nowhere you can go on earth to flee from the Lord. As King David says in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become dark around me, even the darkness will be not dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for the darkness is as light to you. You see, the fact that you're sitting where you are right now is part of the sovereign plan of God. That you're here in Hobart, Tasmania, in 2022 is no accident, but part of God's higher purpose. And that plan or purpose is that you might reach out to him and find him, even though he has never been far from you. You might desperately want to be somewhere else, but God in his mercy is not allowing it. I deliberately say his mercy because if he gave you what you wanted, then you wouldn't recognise your greatest need of all. And that is to acknowledge him. In fact, let me tell you something even more profound. Sometimes God hands us over to do what we want, and that is his judgment. Someone emailed me during the week about this upcoming sermon, and they gave me a very timely word. I always appreciate this before the sermon. They said they often pray this particular short prayer, which comes from a hymn, which I think many of you will know, by William Cowper. And it's called, Oh, for a closer walk with thee. 
we should really sing this hymn. Um, we should all know this. It says, The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Can you hear Jesus calling to you this morning? What idol of your heart is he challenging you to let go of? There's a profound peace to be had when we surrender everything to Jesus. One of the most beautiful expressions of that is found in what is commonly known as the serenity prayer. Most people mistakenly attribute it to St. Francis of Assisi, but its origin is not from him. It's actually more recent. It was by a Protestant theologian named Reinhold Niebuhr. And the opening stanza goes like this, if you're not familiar with it. God, give me grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed. Courage to change the things which should be changed and the wisdom to know the difference. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things that cannot be changed. Courage to change the things which should be changed and the wisdom to know the difference. You see, as we talk about God's sovereignty, we're not talking about all becoming puppets, and we don't take any initiative or do anything, but it's recognising what God's will is and surrendering yourself under his sovereign hand. The prayer is often found on the walls of hospitals or in particular palliative care units. Because it's a beautiful comfort when life is completely out of one's control. When you've done everything you can. And you have to accept that maybe this is the season for you to go to be with the Lord. I know my own father found this tremendous comfort and strength. And he would often say to me that he'd pray this prayer when um, I'd visit him when he was in palliative care. But unfortunately, the second standard, which is not as well known, is just as helpful, if not more so. It says, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. That's what Jesus wants us to do now. It's time to surrender. To trust him as your saviour from sin. To commit yourself to him in humble obedience. And to serve him with all that you have and are. To be like Arthur Stace. To give whatever meagre talent you have for his service. Even if it's only to write one word 500,000 times. For it's in knowing Jesus, worshipping Jesus and in serving Jesus that true life and meaning is to be found. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you and praise you for speaking to us through your word this morning. Father, you know where each and every one of us is at the trials that we are currently going through. 
And we want to pray for your comfort for each and every person here. Minister to us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. Challenge, comfort, rebuke perhaps us. But may it all be done for the glory of your name. Strengthen us, we pray, Father, for whatever lays ahead. May your joy be our strength. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.